This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. I think he really, really, really was driven by the need to restore the dignity of first just Teresa, but then increasingly all of these women, to the point where he's now become the lead expert in Quebec on, if you want to know whether a woman is missing and murdered, you call John Allure. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Author Patricia Pearson wrote Wish You Were Here, which is part investigative journalism and part memoir because she wrote this book with her high school boyfriend 40 years after they broke up. In 1978, Teresa Allure went missing in Quebec, Canada, and decades later, her brother John enlisted the help of Pearson to discover who killed her and if her murderer was a serial killer. Let's talk about how you came to this book, because this is a very personal book for you. So where we start is in the 1970s with me with a high school boyfriend and me entering into the realm of his sort of shattered family a year after his sister went missing for six months and then was found dead in a river. And I had a three-year relationship with him and had a a complete insouciant teenage lack of empathy and understanding for what his family was going through. Hmm. I sort of understood the facts, but the facts weren't that clear. It seemed that she perhaps had died of a drug overdose. John and I wound up going our separate ways. But then you reconnected decades later. Yeah. So this was in the year 2000. So a lot of time had gone by. And in the meantime, by pure coincidence, I had been doing a lot of crime journalism. I had written a book about exploring uh, violent women, and I had left behind that field because it was so toxic. After covering a serial killer trial in 1993, I had, for lack of a better phrase, uh, a sort of nervous breakdown from exposing myself to the ambience of tragedy and, and violence. So I didn't want to do anything to do with crime at that point. And John phoned me from North Carolina, and he said, we hadn't talked in a long time, and he said, you know, when you think back to to when Teresa died, you know, she was found in her bra and panties. 
She had no clothes on. Her clothes were not nearby. She was face down in a creek in April. Do you think that was a drug overdose? I mean, Teresa had absolutely no history of using drugs beyond, you know, the usual hash, whatever. And now that I was a crime journalist, I was like, ah, you know, that actually kind of sounds like a sex murder, right? Yeah. Being able to look back as an adult with all this experience, you view it differently. Yeah. Now let's pause there because now I want to go back and find out about Teresa and the family because the way that this all unravels, I find so interesting because it's not just about Teresa. It's about other young women in that area. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the Allure family, especially, of course, about Teresa. And I'd love to know what the family, what the brother-sister dynamic was between the two of them. Right. So Teresa was the eldest of three children in a typical middle-class white Anglophone, English-speaking family in Montreal, Quebec. There's a pronounced and important divide in Canada between the Francophones and Anglophones in terms of their interaction with each other, particularly in the 70s. So the police are all French. That becomes important. They don't care about the English. Teresa was an extremely smart, highly energized, very athletic, mountain biking, hitchhiking, adventurous young woman. And she had gone to her first year at college So we're talking about the eastern townships, uh, this kind of bucolic, rolling-hilled landscape where you have people making artisanal cheese and beautiful B&Bs and this lovely gabled college that she went to. John and Andre were her two younger brothers who absolutely worshipped her. She was at college for a couple of months before she disappeared, doing very well, lots of friends. She had a boyfriend who's actually now on the um, starring on the show The Vikings, that show. Yeah. And he had gone out. He, he was no longer there. He was working out in the West at the time. But anyway, so she had a very settled, typical college entry life going on. And at this point, John and his parents had moved away with the job posting of his father. So they were no longer in Quebec. They were in a different part of Canada when she disappeared. And the immediate reaction of the college administration and of the local police was to provide the parents with all kinds of demonizing explanations. So if she's disappeared, it must be because she's lesbian. It must be because she's joined a cult. So all of the classic sort of anti-female tropes you could throw they threw at this family as opposed to, say, doing a search of the fields or putting out flyers. Or it was like an extraordinary rebuke of these parents and these kids, these boys, who were just terrified because their sister had disappeared. And that was an injury that lasted a lifetime for Teresa's parents. The cruelty of the college protecting its reputation And the Francophone small town, very corrupt, very misogynistic police, not wanting to have to investigate. And tell me about the tension that you're talking about between French and English. How does that work? Where does that come from? Oh, God, it's a really long story. Can you shorthand it? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's Quebec has always wanted to, not so much now, but for a long time, it wanted to separate from Canada. The French national identity was very, very strong. Separatist movement was very, very strong. You have a very deep affiliation with France and a very deep Catholic tradition, whereas the rest of Canada is mostly like Protestant and tea and sandwiches. Quebec is arguably, I think, still probably the most patriarchal part of this country. And also the other thing is that it was the Anglophones who were the ones who were the most educated in Quebec. So you have these working class French cops 
and you have this educated English family coming in and saying, my privileged daughter is missing. And they were not interested. They're more interested in dealing with the biker gangs and with their own double dealing. Right. There were a lot of women going missing in this time in Quebec, a lot. Like, go-go dancers would be found in the woods, and the police would say, oh, that must be a double suicide. They must have committed suicide together. You would have the most incredible write-offs of young women and girls going missing and showing up dead. And Teresa became essentially one of them, and because she was English, there was no coverage of her disappearance in the largely Francophone community around her. They didn't know about her. They couldn't provide tips about where she might have gone. So you had these two solitudes in the midst of this whole thing going on. What does her family immediately do? They call the police. Do they pressure the police? What are their options once she has gone missing for, what, 24 hours? They didn't know for 24 hours. So actually, they didn't even know that she was missing for a week. Because she was at school. Yeah, she was at school and nobody told them. No roommates or? Yeah, yeah. She had a roommate. She was in a dorm. Nobody told the parents. How is that? I don't understand that. How is that possible? Well, you know, that's part of the legacy of that particular college, that they were running dorms with very young students with extremely limited supervision by adults. And that was part of why they were so defensive. Hmm. And the dorm that Teresa was in was 15 miles away from the main campus. And the only option for the young women to get back to their dorms after class was if they missed the last bus at six was to hitchhike. And they're hitchhiking through a boreal forest, right? Like they're hitchhiking through Twin Peaks kind of geography. Hmm. And that's what happened with her. The last time she was seen was on the main campus. And then we think she hitchhiked. Okay, so she goes missing and the parents and the family don't hear about this for a week. Then what happens? They go to the college. Do they search themselves? Yeah, so they jump in the car, they drive all the way, 12, 14-hour drive, arrive in this small town, book themselves into a motel, and start shaking the trees and start trying to get the administration involved, start trying to get the cops involved, and with some limited success and a lot of indifference. And they stayed there for as long as they could. They hired a private investigator. They were really on their own. Like, it was a remarkable sort of abandonment so that they were going down the streets themselves, knocking on doors, um, talking to French families. Have you seen my daughter? <sighs> they had to come up with their own flyer. But nothing, nothing happened. And finally, one of the investigators with the Quebec police said to them before Christmas, She'll show up someday. Just get back to your life. Just, you got to move on. Just get back to your life. Go home. And no media or anything like that in that area, I'm assuming that they can leverage? No, they couldn't. They couldn't leverage any of the Francophone media. And also because this was outside of Montreal, so the people in the main newspapers in Quebec are in Montreal, and, and this was, from their point of view, a regional disappearance. They didn't care either. Huh. So there was very little for them to leverage. So they had to go back. They had to go back home, and they had to just wait and hope and pray. And finally, it was Easter weekend, and they were having their Easter dinner, and they got a call from the coroner in Montreal who said, we think we found your daughter's body and we need you to come and identify it on Easter Sunday. Tell me how old John and Andre are at the time. So John was 14, and Andre would have been very close in age to Teresa. Okay. But she was the eldest. Yeah, she was the eldest. Andre was right behind her, and then John. So this must have been just heartbreaking for her parents to go there Easter Sunday, and they go and identify the body. 
Yeah, her father had to go. And John remembers walking down the sort of green-painted corridors of the coroner's office in Montreal, you know, with that neon lighting, and his father going in behind closed doors and coming out and never looking the same again. And he couldn't identify her. She was so decomposed that they had to submit her teeth for DNA. And she was found how much, six months later? Yeah, it was it was six months, yeah. Six months later, okay. And it snowed and she was buried under the snow and all of that, I presume. That's right. And she was found in the spring runoff, yeah, by a muskrat trapper. Tell me what they were able to find out just from an autopsy about what happened to her. So the autopsy, which was shared between the coroner and the Quebec investigators, but never relayed to the family for decades, suggested that she had been strangled. They ran toxicology and they found no evidence of drugs in her system. Okay. They told the family neither of those things. Why? To this day, John and I were trying to figure out the mystery of this whole period of time. They didn't want to bother investigating, essentially. At that point, there was a huge kidnapping trial going on where these particular investigators were testifying. Mm -hmm. And that was their focus. Their focus was on money and big, important people who had been kidnapped and crime related to property. They weren't interested in young women disappearing. That was who cared. So they turned around and they told the family that as far as they were concerned, it was unclear what had happened to her, but she probably had died of a drug overdose and her friends had panicked at finding her dead and driven her all the way from the college to a creek and dumped her in and taken off her clothes and hidden them away. And that was the end of that. Did her parents ever get a chance to speak to her roommate or anyone who knew her at the college to get a little bit more real information from them? Well, the interesting thing about this was because of the way the police framed it as the friends panicking and dumping the body, that created a rift between the parents and the friends. Okay. And so, in fact, it served to isolate the witnesses yeah. So that Marilyn Allure, the mother, actually didn't even want these friends to come to Teresa's funeral. She was so heartbroken and betrayed by her sense that they would ever do this to her daughter. They, on the other hand, were convinced that Teresa had been sexually murdered, but they had no voice. Right. They had set up such a bad dynamic between the two. Oh, that's so bad. Did you say they hired investigators or no? Private investigators? They did hire a private investigator, but he didn't. He kind of went around in circles. Huh. So he never found anything terribly useful. I can't remember the sequence, but at some point they discovered that Teresa's wallet was showing up in a ditch on the side of the road, kind of halfway between the city of Sherbrooke and her dorm in the complete opposite direction from where her body was found. Her wallet had been tossed out of the window of a car. Okay. And when the Allures pointed this out to the police, they were like, well, wild animals must have carried it there. <laughs> so let's move on to... This is case closed for the police. They have zero interest in moving forward. Teresa's buried. Yeah. And you meet John, her brother, who is, I'm assuming, now 15 when you all meet. Is that about right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And how old are you, 15 also? Yeah. So you all meet in school. Does everyone at the school has to know about this? Do all of his friends know about this? Yes, they did. But everyone was sort of just handed this narrative crafted by the Quebec police. So it was like, oh, John had an older sister who tragically died of a drug overdose. 
And then you started dating him in high school for three years. And what did he say? He is just living with the fact that his sister was a drug addict who overdosed and then was dumped in a field somewhere. Is that right? Yeah. And I think at that age, and I've subsequently witnessed this with my nephews when my sister died, you're not in a position to really cognitively process that kind of tragedy, but it has an impact on behavior rather than... Right. Do you know what I mean? So when I was with John, the two of us would go on pretty antisocial larks. We would ride without tickets on trains and we would break into a cottage and steal their boots. And he took me to the probably the most marginally criminal edge I've ever been in my life. And when I look back, I realized that that wasn't just inherently John. It was how he was acting out his sense of incredible betrayal by the world. Wow. So you all break up for the reasons why teenagers break up, kind of grow apart. No, we didn't grow apart. I dumped him and he was devastated and I didn't get it. And he said, I don't want to lose you like I lost my sister. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was an injury I did to him that I later apologized for. What's the next big event in John's world? So John wanted to get as far away as he could. And so he left Canada and he moved to Los Angeles. And he kept finding himself drawn to figures in the in the world of crime writing. He befriended James Elroy who wrote My Dark Places, went to his book launch. I wound up going to Los Angeles once, and I was researching my book on violent women, and John and I drove around the city going to the body dump sites of these female serial killers. You know, it's so ironic. Like, we were playing out this thing that would later, it was like pre-configuring where we were going to be. But at that time, we didn't realize that there had been this crime. Hmm. And yet our partnership, our collaboration, even in the early 90s as ex-girlfriend and boyfriend, was wholly focused on the darkness and the criminality of the world. Then I completely lost touch with him for a while. I became parent. He became a parent. So it wasn't until he had moved with his wife to North Carolina. They bought a house in Chapel Hill. He had very young kids at that point, And that was when the sheriff came knocking on the door. So there's a woman buried in his basement. Is that right? Yeah. So it turned out that the man who had lived in the house prior to John buying it, it was like a fixer-upper that he bought, Mm. had murdered this woman and had stashed the body under the house in a crawl space. But... Before he handed the keys of the house over to John, he'd actually remove the body. So it wasn't, they didn't find it there. They found traces of it. Hmm. The sniffer dogs did. But then it had subsequently been hidden somewhere else. But yeah, that was the catalyst for John to get back in touch with me because it was a cold case in North Carolina. And yet the police were so doggedly investigating. Oh, gosh. And that's what made him think. Do you know anything about that case? The woman's name was Deborah Key. She was abducted by the guy who killed her from a bar. And that bar, by the time John and his wife were fixing up their house, had become the store that John's wife was fixing up. Wow. So they they managed to acquire both her abduction point and her burial point when they moved to North Carolina. That poor guy. That really must have been traumatizing because she was 19 also. Yes. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So he gets back in touch with you. What does he say? This is now a case that is, what, 30-something years old, the case of his sister? Yeah, almost 30 years old. And he wanted my advice at first. And I didn't want to get pulled back into crime journalism. Yeah. I associated that with a lot of bad things in my life. But at the time, I was working for a daily newspaper in Toronto. So they had the resources. 
And once we heard from Detective Kim Rosmo in Texas that he thought this probably was a sexual homicide, the newspaper gave me the go-ahead to help John investigate and see what we could find out about what might have happened. And that's when we began a five-month investigation. So I'll ask you, I don't know if this is the right point to ask about forensics. Was anything saved? Was anything taken? Yes, our investigation was quite radically hampered by the fact that the cops had thrown everything out. So her bra, her panties, her earrings, anything that might have had DNA on it, they had tossed. Wow. Yeah. I mean, is that legal? I didn't think you could do that. I guess if they're not opening up a criminal investigation. It's not legal. And it was happening in all of these cases in Quebec. So the other cases that we began to stumble across as we were looking into what happened to Teresa, we find, oh, wait a minute, nine months earlier, this other woman also is found dead in the forest nearby, naked and strangled. And then it's like, oh, wait a minute, half a year after that, this younger woman is found face down in a creek 16 kilometers south of where Teresa was found. Ultimately, all of those cases had evidence tossed. So you couldn't come at it from the angle of retroactive forensics. Okay, where do we start? You all visit the University of Texas at Austin, which incidentally is where I teach also. So you visit this professor. Tell me the conversation again with the professor. You say this is what happened. She's found in a bra and panties. She was not a drug user. Yeah. When do we find out about toxicology? I mean, when is all this lie revealed finally? John became a master of filing freedom of information requests. Good. And he started, he used all kinds of angles to come at this. And he found all kinds of ways to get this information coughed up over the years by the police. So I can't remember exactly when he found out about the toxicology. But what happened with Kim Rosmo was that he was a, a specialist and a groundbreaking specialist in an area of criminal investigation called geographic profiling. So when I went to him and I said, Kim, you know, we've got the situation, but we've also discovered that there's these other missing and murdered women in this very small, very sparsely populated, very bucolic area. So statistically, sexual homicide comprises about 4% of all cases of homicide. So if you're in an area of that sparse a population that only has a very small percentage of overall homicides in a year, you know, the homicide rate in Canada in, in general would be somewhat lower than the states because of our gun laws. Finding three women with unsolved murders within 20 miles of each other over the course of 18 months defies the statistical probabilities, right? Yep. So Kim said, okay, why don't we get at this through geographic profiling? So let's look at where these women are on a map and where were they last seen and where were they found? And using that kind of triangulation, he had come up with a formula for where the suspect was likeliest to have lived. In other words, we had to get at what happened to Teresa less through the usual route of DNA or forensics and at the root of who the culprit might have been. So he is making some assumptions. He's assuming that this is a killer who is staying within a certain amount of parameters that he set for himself. So he's assuming this is not a truck driver who is just placing people in certain areas and then taking off. He feels strongly that this is someone who wants these women here for a particular reason. Is that right? Or is it more subconscious? 
No, that's right. But it's based on the idea of routine activities theory. So basically the postulation of that criminology is that assailants, whether they're rapists or robbers or murderers, will tend to operate along their own routine pathways. So if somebody's abducted from a 7-Eleven or whatever, then it's quite likely that that's a convenience store that that assailant has been passed like a hundred times because they're operating within a zone of comfort for themselves. So like my lifelong terror of being alone at my cottage turns out to be stupid because unless there's somebody on the lake where my cottage is whose routine activity is to go past that cottage, there isn't going to be an assailant who feels comfortable enough in committing their crime there, particularly in cases where you've got women who've been abducted and dumped because there has to be a place where the commission of the crime occurs, where the assailant feels comfortable. They're not going to put themselves in a position of insecurity and vulnerability by going to somewhere that they are totally unfamiliar with to commit a crime because they don't know the factors around them. I think here where you're looking at somebody who's actually going methodically out of their way to dump the body. So first they're abducting and then they're dumping the body 20 miles away from the abduction site. Then in the main, for the most part, seem to want to feel they know where they're going. Okay, let's go back, because now we're saying you and John and Kim believe this is the work of one person. So there are three women that are within 10 years apart from each other. Can you tell me anything about the other two, about, is it Menon? Is that how you say her name? Menon Dubay, yeah. Okay, and Louise. Yeah. So tell me what you know about both of them first. And clearly Menon is not a drug user in any way. No, this is a very, a, quite a tall 10-year-old girl, and she's walking home from playing in a snowbank, a tobogganing or something like that in a snowbank, in a working-class section of, of the city of Sherbrooke that's pretty densely populated. And her little sister runs on ahead of her down this one block of the street because she's cold. She wants to get home faster. And in that tiny, tiny narrow window of time between the two girls being together on the sidewalk and one of them turning the corner at the top of the block... Manon disappears. Like a really small window of time. Uh, Her sister must just forever live with that guilt. Yeah, this whole thing has spawned this kind of amazing group of family members all over the province of Quebec who have had similar dismissals from the police and have started to work together in all of these ways. And one of them is Manon Dubé's sister. And there's no sound of a car crash. There's no, nobody hears anything in this densely populated street block. She just vanishes into thin air. Wow. She's found before or after Teresa is found? Before. Okay. Because it's a child, there's actually an active community response, of course, and they go searching. They don't find her immediately. I think it was about a month later, actually, that they found her, and she was lying face down in a creek, a similar distance away from the abduction site, as Louise Cameron was from where she was abducted and where Teresa was from where she seems to have disappeared. So in all three cases, you're talking about driving through very, very dark, very, very unlit country roads in winter, up side roads, through like little forest cuts to very isolated spots, and then the body not being buried, but being laid out to be found. Louise was the first of the three, is that right? March of 77? That's right. And she disappeared from a convenience store in South Sherbrooke. What do we know about Louise? 
So she was a young woman. She was engaged to be married. She was working. I can't remember what she did. I think she was a dental hygienist. And she'd gone out to buy cigarettes and milk and then was going to be joining up with her fiancé. And she just never showed up. And she was found in the woods completely naked with her clothes in a little folded pile just out of reach. So she was strangled with a bootlace. So you have, with these two victims, who are not new victims because these happened around this time period, but new to us, Mm -hmm. Louise is clearly murdered, and Manon is a girl, a young girl, a 10-year-old who's tall, who we assume he mistook her for a short woman or a woman. Yeah, their official explanation was that she had been hit by a car in this short little narrow window of time on this tiny city block, that the driver had gotten out, panicked, put her body into his car, driven 20 miles, and dumped her in a creek, rather than maybe calling the police. Wow. So that was their official explanation, and thus they didn't investigate. With Louise Cameron, they did some sort of lame effort at investigation. They tried to pin it on her fiancé, but then eventually they just said, well, we can't solve it. It's going to be one of a long, long list of unsolved female homicides. By the way, later, John and I found several more within a slightly broader range of this area of women dumped. It just expands into almost infinity, the number of unsolved female homicides you can find. Did Kim think that those women who you discovered subsequently could fit into that range with geographic profiling of this particular guy? He was skeptical just because it was getting a little bit too much further out. John and I would play with all these different scenarios, and Kim would say, you've got to stay with the evidence. Don't go running off with these hypotheticals. But it's very tempting because they're so similar. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's like, I can totally see the attraction of like armchair sleuthing or going to those true crime conferences and stuff because it's just such an endless intrigue. But at the end of the day, you can't do it. You can't pin it, so... We just don't know. Right. Okay, so what year is it when you all make the decision that your killer for this young girl and these two women lives in this tiny little town? This was around 2001. And what happened was once Kim Rosmo gave us the suggestion that we were probably looking at a suspect in this particular part of the city of Sherbrooke, I then went to a criminologist in Quebec, who was a specialist in sexual homicide and had done a lot of research with the offenders within the prison system. And I said, do you happen to have come across from 20 years ago, like this would be somebody who might now be incarcerated for another crime? Do you happen to know of anyone who comes out of this particular part of South Sherbrooke who committed sexual murders? And he was like, yeah, I do. Wow. And he told me the name. And this guy was incarcerated for an extremely violent sexual homicide of a young immigrant woman in the city of Calgary in the early 90s, but was from this part of South Sherbrooke and had been living in that. And we determined, in fact, that his parents' house was within walking distance of the convenience store that Louise Cameron had been abducted from. So we gave that information to the police. So at this point, we publish our three-part series in the national newspaper and tell the police, we don't say the name in the paper, but we tell the police that we think we have a suspect. The first reaction is to finally, for the first time, admit and acknowledge that Teresa Allure was murdered. And for the family, that was huge, just to be treated with dignity. Yeah. And then they also, for the very first time, established a cold case squad. So they had never up to that point in Quebec even had investigators assigned to or even looking at these 
hundreds of unsolved female homicides. So they established the cold case squad and they assigned somebody to work with John on his sister's case. And they tried to run the DNA on the wallet, her wallet that had been tossed in the ditch. But by then, so many people had handled it. They had actually given it back to John's father in like 1979. And it had been sitting in a drawer in his office all this time. So they did run a DNA comparison with the suspect in the prison. And it came up inconclusive because there was too many people handling the wallet. And then they went out to collaborate with the police in Calgary about the missing and murdered women out there. So they did make some effort, but they were completely hampered by the lack of existing evidence. Were there any consequences for the police who were working these cases 30 or 40 years ago? I understand many of them might not be around. Was there any sort of public shaming other than the apology or whatever John's family received saying that Teresa was murdered? She wasn't an addict who just deserved what she got? I would say not. Okay. It's interesting because when this book came out, the response in the Eastern Townships in particular was one of very extreme defensiveness. They don't want to have to visit the realities of that level of misogyny and corruption. It makes them really uncomfortable. John's a real thorn in the side of Quebec, and he has been for years, and he gets a lot of English language coverage, and he's won a Senate award for his victim advocacy work. But it's very difficult to get them to take on the shame of what's happened. So there is someone sitting in prison. Is he still in prison right now? No, he died. John wrote to him. When they couldn't get anywhere with the evidence, John finally just said, I'm going to write to him. I'm just going to write him a letter, and I'm going to ask him if he killed my sister. And the guy responded. And it was interesting because we then had two forensic analysts analyze his response. What were the results of this test? So the results of the test was that the guy was lying. He was saying, no, because he wanted parole, right? In Canada, even if you commit a murder, you, you have what's called the faint hope clause, which is still dangling the possibility of parole as a way of kind of trying to get people to behave themselves. Huh. And so, of course, you're not going to admit to an additional crime if you have any possibility of parole. And in fact, I think he was applying for parole the following year. And so he wrote this kind of weird sort of sunshiny little paragraph of a letter to John saying, hey, thanks for getting in touch. Nope, sorry, I didn't kill your sister. Hmm. But the framing of the language was analyzed as being evasive and deflective. Hmm. Yeah, and then in 2015, we found out that he had died in prison, and it's not clear whether he was murdered by fellow inmates or whether he died of a heart attack, or we never got the information about that. Is it possible to get in touch with his family to see if they had heard anything or knew anything, or is that just too much for John? No, we tried to go down that rabbit hole. John and I were both hampered by not being sufficiently fluent in French. Oh. So his family is like a working-class Francophone family. They wouldn't speak to the press. So when this guy was arrested for the murder in Calgary that he was nailed with and suspected of three others, the Calgary journalist called his mother in Quebec to get her comment on it, and she said, he was a cute little boy, and then hung up. Hmm. This family, we already knew they wouldn't engage. Mm -hmm. But what we started to wonder because his name was the same as the name of one of the investigators for the Sûreté de Québec. Oh. Same name. At one point, John and I were literally actually wandering through the rain in a cemetery in Sherbrooke, looking at the clusters of tombstones, trying to figure out whether the reason the police had been so adamantly incompetent in the investigation in the first place was in fact because they were protecting him. 
Wow. Okay. And that was a road that we tried to go down. And neither of us had the skill, I think. Like, I think you would need a forensic genealogist. But we just had that feeling. Like, it just seemed like it was so, they went so far out of the way not to investigate that we started to wonder, you know, maybe this guy was connected in some way. Or he was an informant. Maybe he was an informant for the cops because of their obsession with the bite gangs. And so they just didn't want to, if they saw his fingerprint on a murder, they just wanted to downplay it. You were going down rabbit holes with this. You just go forever and ever and ever. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Talking to each other on the phone every day, you know. My husband's like, why are you on the phone all the time with your ex-boyfriend? Like, (laughs) 40 years ago. (laughs) Come on. So all of this information that you've gathered, the police have now admitted that Teresa was murdered, that none of this was her fault, that this should have been investigated, I'm presuming. You have figured out that it is very, very likely that she was one of at least three women who have been murdered, probably by the same person. You think you've identified the person, even though he's died. How was all of this information received by John's parents? It must be difficult no matter what. It was interesting because his father didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want us to do this. For him, it was a trauma he had put behind him. In fact, he died within two months of our publishing. So it was tough for him. His mother, who's lovely, just a lovely woman, she understood that John had this demon that he had, that he was just driven and driven and driven. But she was almost less interested in the suspect that we identified. She wanted vindication for the way she was treated by the police and the school. Oh, yeah. And it was almost irrelevant who had done it at this point. Well, it was personal. It felt personal, I'm sure, to her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was people who were looking her in the eye. Yeah. And lying to her. What was her reaction? Or, I mean, I guess we'll concentrate on Marilyn, the mother, because what was her reaction to the toxicology report, the disclosure of the toxicology report? I mean, was this a, I knew it, or was this a sigh of relief? Oh, this was an absolute vindication for her because she had lived so long with the shame, the shame of the idea that your own child, that you couldn't prevent them from going down the road of drug addiction and death, that she had failed as a mother. That's what she lived with as a narrative for 40 years. And then for Teresa to be dismissed because of that, because of a lie. So Andre, the middle child, what is his reaction to all of this? Andre continued to live in Montreal. He never went far from the scene of this tragedy. And when he had children, he started to do his own investigation about five years before John and I. But he didn't know how to proceed. And he just kind of tried to sort of poke around, but he didn't have the skill set. And whatever he gathered, he yielded to John. And then he became very interested and involved and supportive in what we were doing. But at the same time, I think all of the, the whole family, the Allure family, they were very very concerned about the obsessive level of commitment that John had to this. It's not let sleeping dogs lie, but it's like for them as a coping mechanism, you have to let go. Right. And John would not. His co-workers would walk into his office in the city of Durham, North Carolina, and the whole wall would be covered with a map of Quebec with little dots and a string and so on, identifying female dump sites. I find it interesting because, not to simplify this, but he's the youngest. He's the one who knew her the least. Andre was closer in age. So do you think that she just impacted him in a way? Yeah, I think it's partly in his nature. He's a very intense and curious and passionate person. But I think also, you know, it's funny because after my sister died and she was my older sister, 
I went back to John again. This was another kind of point at which we crossed paths and found deeper understanding in each other's experience. I became very driven by the need to vindicate certain things in my sister's experience. And I think this was the same thing with John. I think he really, really, really was driven by the need to restore the dignity of first just Teresa, but then increasingly all of these women. To the point where he's now become the lead expert in Quebec on, if you want to know whether a woman is missing and murdered, you call John Allure. Is there closure in a case like this? Has this brought him closer to some kind of peace? I know he takes issue with the idea of closure. He doesn't see it as that. He sees it as an ongoing spectrum of perception and orientation towards something that happened to him and to his family. It was an interesting experience to co-author this book with him because I'm the craft one, the crafts. I want to say craftsman, but I can't. So what's, do you say craftswoman? <laughs> Wordsmith. Wordsmith, yeah. I'm the wordsmith. I'm the trained one with writing. He had to yield the ground there, which was very hard for him because this was his story and he had owned this story for so long. So he had to step back and let me craft it. And that was interesting as a personal experience for him to realize that he had to start letting go of the story. So in fact, from the beginning part of the actual writing of the book to the fall of 2020, I did see a change come over John. And I think it was because uh, he became like lighter, lighter of spirited. And I think it was because for the first time, again, his life seems to operate in metaphor. He literally had to let go of some of the story. Well, what a wonderful gift that you've given him. Yeah, well, it's the least I can do for the way I treated him at the very beginning. That's the closure for me. I had to give John something back. Why? Because you broke up with him? Or did you feel like you were dismissive in the three years you were together of this crime? Yeah. Because you didn't think it was a crime. Yeah. It's not that I did anything that any other 15-year-old wouldn't have done. I didn't understand tragedy when I was 15. And I owed it to him later to help him through the darkest depths of this thing that I had not understood. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Vivian Ho on murder in San Francisco's underhoused community. What I found in my investigation and reporting the story was that in the search to not be unhoused anymore, that was what essentially led Hayes, Lampley, Lila Oligod, and Sean Engolds to kill two people. They were looking for essentially a quick way to make some cash and a quick way to escape and get to an almost promised land. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words.
Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.